Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFist podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 321, and today's guest is Gabby Steele, co-founder and CEO at Prequel. Building a company is hard, and there is no one right way to go about getting started, especially when you are creating a new category. But when I talk to founders like Gabby, there was always an emphasis on generating revenue from the start. It's obviously a smart move as you can control your own destiny through any customer work that might seem more like a services play. But in addition to being able to pay the bills by bootstrapping, you are also getting a tremendous amount of market research and exposure to the real world problems that your customers are trying to solve. It was this approach that allowed Gabby and her co-founder Leah Weiss the ability to spin off and launch Prequel as a standalone product company and raise capital to grow it. Prequel is a no-code data transformation solution built for business users. Their technology's core solutions help companies with data access, metric management, and data governance. The company has raised $7 million from Bessemer Venture Partners. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like a deep dive into the world of data visualization and the career path into that field. Gabby's background story, including how she got her career started at the Washington Post, her experience at WeWork, where she met her co-founder and the creation of the company's data cult program, plus how the portrayal in the We Crash series may have been under-dramatized. The founding of Raw House, a community connecting emerging talent across the art, design, technology, and entrepreneurial spaces. The full background story of a prequel and how they built revenue from its consultancy and spun out a product. The challenges of building a new category in tech and selling it to a business user, hiring the company's first sales leader, lessons learned while building a product company, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then you need to add a VentureFizz subscription. It is our employment branding solution that allows you to build up your employment brand to a very targeted set of eyeballs in the tech industry. A subscription includes a company profile page, unlimited postings to our job board, access to all of our employment branding content series, which includes videos, podcasts, employee profiles, DEI spotlights, and more, and ongoing promotional support across our social channels and email properties. And all this is at a super affordable rate. So if you are interested in learning more, please reach out to info at All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Gabby. Gabby, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here, Keith. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you because you've been very, very busy building a company and uh, uh, there's a lot to talk about because you are very involved in building communities. So I'm excited to talk about that because I think that's important for a lot of people to think about. But you're in a space focused around data visualization. And I don't think that's a space that a lot of people think about as it relates to maybe a potential career path. Um, so I thought it would be helpful just to kind of like define what that is, data visualization, and then what is like, how does someone enter into that field? Yeah, totally. So I'll just start by saying I began my career in the space of data visualization prior to that, actually more graphic design. And then I can talk about the entry points. And today I work on a product called Prequel, which is part of the data analytics stack. And it sits closer to data access, transformation and modeling, but we'll, we'll get to that and how I landed there and how data visualization plays a role in my current work. But, um, the idea of data visualization, right? It, I, I always describe the field as a combination between three disciplines, data science, data analytics, statistics, so to speak. So being able to crunch numbers and get insights from those numbers, 
Um, another one of the sort of triangle of disciplines would be computer science. So a lot of front end visualization, thinking about languages like D3JS, which is a JavaScript library that maps shapes to numbers um, and is used to create dynamic visualizations. And then the third is design and thinking about things visually and being able to visually represent those shapes and do so um, even before you start building a, a bar chart or a graph or whatever scrolly telling storytelling project you might be doing. And the tip of those three triangle that I came from was design, actually. I studied painting in my undergrad. So literally oil painting with my hands. Um, and then eventually ended up doing graphic design because it was a segue into anything that you could get paid to do in a reasonable way. Um, for me, I was an okay artist, but it wasn't gonna be my uh, career trajectory. And then from graphic design, I um, I was working at fashion like brands there was a, a period where i was at diane von furstenberg the like wrap dress person and i was doing all these different designs of like hang tag labels to bigger building designs and it was interesting um but i couldn't really see a future for myself where the impact that i wanted to create in terms of both helping people solve meaningful problems and just being able to actually build the things i was drawing or designing there was sort of a, an end to that road, which was when I discovered this master's program that Parsons School of Design had come out with in data visualization. And that felt really appropriate for me because I was coming from a design background, but I wanted to move closer to engineering. Um, so I graduated from that program around 2015. It was the first year they'd ever run that specific degree. So this was an emerging field in a lot of ways. And as soon as I uh, got out of that program, first I, I sought you know, a job opportunity. And I actually went to go work for the Washington Post. And it was around the 2016 election time when data visualization and storytelling had this big moment, um, because we were telling the story of Hillary versus Trump and the election and who was going to win. Um, so anyway, to, to kind of like summarize my answer to how people get into this field, there's a lot of different points, but um, it's kind of come about as its own discipline in the past 10 years. Uh, and the reason being, there's so much data that we use and access today, which isn't useful to most audiences, if not made into something visual. Uh, and then from the Washington Post, I ended up going to lead a data visualization engineering team at WeWork, where I met my co-founder, Leah Weiss, and I can tell more of the entrepreneurship side of this story afterwards. But um, that's kind of the, the data viz sphere. Is it becoming more common? Like are other schools building programs around it? Yes. So five years ago, Parsons had this master of science in data visualization, then being like a design school that was doing the science side. And Northeastern was also offering a degree in, it was like an MFA in data visualization. Today, five, six years later, there's a whole bunch more programs and it actually is becoming more ingrained. I don't know. I can't be sure whether data visualization will always be a field of its own, but it will definitely be something that's involved in many other fields because visualizing information is critical to so many workplaces. So I think it's becoming more popular, but it's also becoming more um, ingrained in other in other spaces. That's interesting. I mean, because then you look at the, the analytics piece, like so many schools have adopted, you know, sports analytics, and there's these specialties within data analytics now that you know never existed 10 years ago or something to that effect. So it's just interesting to see how curriculum is evolving to the modern era. <laughs> so exactly. It's what people need. They'll teach it. Um, but obviously, and I teach that, I mean, this is very common to the work that I do. 
I'm really passionate about bringing more people into the space of data, data science. I talk about data culture a lot. My previous company before prequel was called data culture. It still exists. And my co-founder Leah, she also didn't come from a traditional data background. And when we were in high school, there weren't even jobs like data visualization engineer available. So I think like it is becoming more popular, but the main thing I tell young people and people in general when they're thinking about getting involved in this field is to be open-minded to different disciplines and never get too stuck in one thing. Like maybe you're going to be a lawyer or a doctor, but otherwise the world changes faster than I think we realized initially. Um, and data visualization is a great example of that and something that I think is here to stay. All right. So for other listeners of our podcast, if they've listened to other episodes, usually I, I talk about something and then I go through someone's career path, but that was a perfect example of like, that's why I wanted to start with that background story because your entry point is unique. And I think people need to understand to get into a field like this, there's no linear path. There's different ways to approach it. So, um, so let's talk about when you joined the Washington Post, so as you were getting your career started, so what did you work on when you actually, you know, kind of got into the field in a, a career? Yeah, so, and I had, you know, a design career prior to this, which like did play a role in the next iteration. But while we're on data visualization, people who build visual journalistic pieces or visual stories as their profession was something that really emerged around that time. It was like 2012 to 2017 or whatever was really having a moment, especially in the election, especially at the Washington Post and the New York Times. And these roles, these titles, some of my colleagues at the New York Times, their titles were like graphic editor. So they weren't just doing storytelling from the visual perspective. They were also writing the pieces, going out, like collecting sometimes footage and media that they would then layer in to these websites, essentially like microsites. And that's what I worked on at the Washington Post. And I was also close to their revenue generating team. I was in New York City and it's a team called the Brand Studio Team. Washington, uh, to, to New York Times has T-Brand. There's a lot of different like brand content teams that do this work too. So both from the newsroom and then from the revenue generating side of these newspapers where you're creating long form visual stories with graphics and words together. From the newsroom, there's some really interesting work that comes from like layering in video footage. And as you scroll on a website, different charts and graphs appearing and the user being able to interact with them. And it's a new way of sharing news, right? And in some ways more accessible than any other format because you don't necessarily need to know how to read to engage with some of these pieces, though there are always words. Um, and in other ways, less accessible because folks that have been opening like print-based newspapers on their table over the past, whatever, hundreds of years are now needing to learn a whole new way of engaging with the content. So a big component of data visualization is being able to teach people who've never seen what you've built before to engage with it. Um, and that's a lot of what I worked on while I was there and a lot of what other folks were working on. And I think it's the most interesting form of career when you're doing data visualization purely to be doing like journalistic, sto like storytelling. There's a, an era of scrolly telling where as you scroll, the story kind of tells itself on the web page and interactive pieces are coming in. And these are pieces that people work on for many months, like as a web designer, this is kind of the most fun thing you can do, I think, working on a scrolling website piece. Um, so that was a big part of my journey. And then I got to a place where uh, with the Washington Post, it was like you go to another, like a Vox or a New York Times or kind of break beyond that. And we can sort of use this as a segue to transition into my more like tech-sided 
um, next steps in my career. I, I was teaching at the time. I was teaching at uh, Parsons, doing more data viz stuff there. I developed a, a certificate program in data visualization. I also taught at Columbia. And WeWork had just been valued at $49 billion, and it was their heyday moment. Um, I think I joined as employee 2000 or something, but by the time I left, there were 16,000 employees and wow. my co-founder Leo was like employee 50 there. So it was an exciting time just generally for folks that were on the cusp of tech and design, which has always been part of my journey and career. Um, and I, I decided to go there really because I met her and she shared her story of, you know, I was also in humanities and this is a place you can do anything. So I walked away from the journalism world a little bit. Um, for many, I mean, it's exciting and I think you can stay there for a long time. Um, but I was also interested in this, like going beyond and working in tech a little bit more, which was WeWork then. Um, and why were they building a data visualization engineering team? Because data visualization had become so popular and it was a way to say like, with a data viz eng team, we can build visualizations that will impact our revenue, put us on the map make it so that more people can engage with WeWork metrics and how we're, um, they were doing a lot of work like developing cities and it was a really exciting time. Um, so I made that transition then, but always had the through line of like going back and bringing more people into data viz. And while I was at WeWork, I joined forces with Leo Weiss who'd been leading like a data product team and previously business intelligence teams. And I was really drawn to all of the analytics that they were sitting on that the rest of the company didn't have access to. And this is so common. So many organizations are sitting on tons and tons of data and that information is siloed and not accessible, whether it's because there are technical issues, you can't write SQL, so you can't pull data from the warehouse, whether there's not enough Tableau licenses to go around and it's too expensive there. It's a lot of different reasons. Um, but her and I developed a curriculum that taught non-technical teams across the company how to access WeWork's data to solve $10 million problems. And WeWork at that time had a lot of $10 million problems and, and continued to for many years past. Um, but we would like to fly around the, the world. Is this the data cult? Is this the data cult initiative? This is yeah. our data cult's initial program. Yeah. Um, and we called it data cult. There was a program that had been running that was already kind of data cult-ish and we like reinvented it. Um and got a lot of buy-in from executives because we were tying it to these $10 million problems. So that was helpful. I did like, I, I knew that's how you met your co-founder and uh, employee 50, your employee 2000 around that range. So, you know, uh, I obviously want to spend a lot of time talking about the companies you guys have been building, but um, working at WeWork, you know, there's been a lot said, and obviously there was the, uh, the portrayal of, you know, we crashed, right. Which was the, the mini series or, or the, yep. I think it was HBO max, right. Or one of them, yeah, Apple, I forget. Um, so, what, so I always want to ask somebody who actually worked there, was that portrayal? I, I thought it was entertaining, but I'm like, are these always, was this, you know, over dramatized or like, I just wanted someone's opinion. I will say in one line, it was more than over-dramatized, under-dramatized. Like this could not have been more accurate in terms of how we were experiencing it. And Leah and I talk frequently about the moment where we will tell our story as employees of this wild journey. Um, there were incredible people that worked there though. And it was just, it was truly a like a, a place of creativity. Like when, you're, when your leadership is so outlandish and things are happening in such a crazy way, uh, you only can imagine like the layers beneath, but um, we tell people that that's exactly how we experience it in a lot of ways. It was that wild. We attended these summer camps. 
Leah had seen the rise and fall from the beginning to end, really, because she was there very early days with Adam, actually doing reporting for him um, and trying to figure out ways to get him numbers. And then as the journey progressed. So I think we were there at the peak. And yes, that was real. It was all real. Uh, but there were so many more stories. And we look forward to telling them in the years to come. We I think we recorded a few podcasts around the time of the downfall that never went public. So maybe you'll be our partner there and getting that stuff out there. But we're excited. And yes, it really went down that way. Wow. Okay. All right. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. More to stay come. Stay tuned. There's a lot lot more stories to share in 2024. Yeah. All right. Well, as a side note here, because I started off by talking about, you know, it's very obvious you're a, a builder of communities. And yeah. you you had started like a, a community for emerging artists and designers and technologists. Like, I think it was pre-WeWork around that, like, but- I, It was, it was around the example. time I joined WeWork at the Washington Post. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So what was that all about? Like what led you to, to start that initiative? Yeah. So the, the high level, just to tie it back as well to what you were sharing, like thinking about getting into a career in data visualization, right? The best advice you can give a person is to be open-minded and not hard-headed about like what they want to do when they grow up, even though there's a lot of social things that go into that. Um, to me, being open-minded has also been really tied to creating community and connecting with other folks doing different things. So when I graduated from Parsons with, from the state of visualization program, having been a designer previously, then moving into data journalism, it was really important to me to continue to explore other places where I could bring together different disciplines. And my first company was this company, Raw House, that brought together, yes, emerging artists and emerging engineers into one space. And they would gather in different offices after dark in New York City. We ran 10 events in 10 months and talked a lot about different ways that people could move from one part of a company to another, from one career to another, whether it was design moving into engineering or engineering moving into design, vice versa. Um, and it was a really good um, stomping ground, whatever. It was a really good uh, place for people to also explore new uh, new jobs. Like they weren't necessarily actively online looking, but recruiters could come there and meet people who were passively searching for new opportunities. Um, and then the community kind of continued with this data cult community that we created at WeWork. I think some of the best ideas come from multidisciplinary spaces, people where rooms where people come from expertise in all different areas. And that's not typically the structure of an engineering team, right? Like everybody's coming from the same place or the structure of a design team. Um, but when I went to build the first company, Leah and I started together, Data Culture, post WeWork, that was all about bringing together multidisciplinary voices to solve data problems. So I'm kind of going in many different directions here, but I think community cannot be undervalued. It's the reason we work was so successful in a lot of ways. The community that they sold was also the community that they created. And it wasn't a community that was governed so seriously by a strict set of rules. You needed, you know, architects to build the, the buildings and you needed huge technology teams or did you need huge technology teams? But they invested in huge technology teams that then built the apps and all of the different layers within that, even a data visualization engineering team. And through that, really incredible things were built and happened, which was also the case um, with my prior community. It didn't end up being something that was so easy to convert to revenue, hence why I continued on the journey of having full-time work at WeWork, et cetera. Um, 
and then we built this international community where by the time we left in 2019, the first time we were kind of fell apart right after the IPO, more than a thousand employees had graduated from the data cult program that Lee and I had created globally. We taught it in Singapore, in Shanghai, in Mexico City. I was in London teaching to a group from EMEA when we got the message saying Adam Newman just stepped down. Like it was a wild journey. We were blowing this thing out. Um, and people were all engaged. Like they were so excited. And the amount of people that have written to us afterwards and said, I'm now pursuing a role in data science because I took your two-week crash course that you made up at WeWork um, is really exciting. I got a note an hour ago from someone saying, do you know this person? I'm hiring them. I want a back channel. I'm now at Google doing data science. Somebody that was on like a sales team. So I think like it's never too late to shift careers and it's never too late to start community, join community. Um, and today with our most recent venture prequel that continues to be a big part of it um as is the consultancy that we started afterwards uh they do a lot of work with bringing together data leaders in new york and virtually everywhere well perfect segue so uh data culture is what you and leah started right after we work so that, that was more like um like a consultancy right like helping organizations leverage the data that they have in these different silos and actually get use out of it right yeah, so in December of 2019, WeWork's IPO had failed, mass layoffs were starting, and her and I, as I shared, had built this amazing data cult program, this data cult curriculum, amazing initiative. We have a, had a lot of support from different folks who their companies had been acquired by WeWork because it was a big movement. Like when meetup.com was acquired, how do we start leveraging meetups data in WeWork? And I think M&A is a really interesting um, place for data as well. Whenever a company joins another company, like how do you handle that data? It's also part of like one of the things we're solving at Prequel, being able to easily join new data with old data and modeling it. But um so, so because of that, some of those founders, that's how we really found a, a clearer path into entrepreneurship. A lot of people who left WeWork were then starting companies and we knew we wanted to, but we were like, we're not going to raise venture money right now. Look at what just went wrong, how badly that could go. Let's sell what we know. So I knew how to sell data visualization tools and build data visualizations. And Leah knew how to implement modern data infrastructure, having put in place Snowflake and Fivetran and DBT and Looker, which is the modern data stack at WeWork that was all implemented while she was there. Um, so we set out to build that company. I think we started like we, it was really cold December time. We went to Chase Bank because our friend Avi Flombaum, who's one of the founders of Flatiron School, I think he bought us datacult.com, the initial website. He was like, go run with this. We're like, oh, the name we used at WeWork is we were going to come after. He was like, no, WeWork's never going to just go. Now I'm talking about it publicly. But at the time we were nervous. Uh, I wired her $1,500 and she put in $1,500 because she already had a Chase account and I was with Bank of America or whatever. Um, and we opened this business, okay? And didn't know where to go exactly, but we were like, let's just see who will pay us for our skill set. This is just before the pandemic started, thankfully, because I think had the pandemic started sooner, we would have been afraid to, to start it then. Um, and our first customers were a, cons uh, a VC that needed uh, data visualization that showcased DNI data in their portfolio. And they paid us to build that data visualization. So that's me coming back with my data viz journalism. And then one of our other early clients was Carly Kloss, who had a data curriculum for young women, and she wanted to build a data science program that was like 
so in our wheelhouse having built this curriculum and that is where the version of data cult that we started at WeWork really lives on that curriculum continues to exist and we teach now we don't actually instruct them but we created an instructor's course there's a data science program for a 13 to 19 year old woman that's free through code with Classy. Um, so those are the first things we sold and then the pandemic began and that's where Leah's skill set really kicked in because all of these e-com brands and retail brands where customers could no longer visit in store were then coming back online. They needed to track them. They needed to implement modern data infrastructure. So we started working with a whole bunch of different retailers and then growing from there our client base um, and data culture uh, was very organic, but also profitable in its first year. I think we did half a million in revenue the first year and like 4 million the next. So it just really exploded. And it also meant that we could hire remote workers. There was a lot of different ways to make that grow. So by the end of 2021, we were a team of 15. We'd worked with more than 50 businesses solving their data problems with this multidisciplinary approach, but frequently implementing modern data tools. Um, and it was early January, 2022, when we looked at our, um, our stack and our, all our customers. And we were like, where are we spending the most time here? Like what feels the worst after we work with a company for three months, what we would do is act as a fractional data team. We did also create a data visualization studio. This business lives on, you can still hire them. They're incredible. We have a new CEO that runs that company, um, which kind of gives away the next part of the story, which was what was the worst part, what felt the worst? Well, when we implemented modern data infrastructure for companies that didn't have data teams, we were essentially handing back to them a GitHub repo that someone could not manage, obviously, because that's why they'd hired us with a new Snowflake warehouse and all their data tools in one place and some BI tools. But what happens when you want to change a dashboard or a metric in that dashboard? And what happens when, you know, someone on a different team wants to add a new tool and you then need to merge that data in? Sure, like data culture can continue to make money, but it doesn't really create data culture, so to speak, at the organizations or data-driven thinking, um, which was the moment that we decided, listen, we got to build something in the space. What's the hardest part of implementing a modern data infrastructure? It's modeling the data into metrics, like clean metrics. So pretty cool was born and we started building the product and essentially at the beginning, we were going to raise, you know, a little bit of money, a million dollars into data culture. And then, you know, spin up a team, an engineering team that would just focus on building the product. We talked to some VCs. Uh, we were going to test the water with VCs. That was our thing. Like, let's see if they're interested, which is just not a thing. You don't test the waters with VCs. You're raising, you're not raising. And VCs also don't care about revenue um, or, or you know, entire ownership, so to speak. So me and Leah were like, well, we really care about our revenue at our consultancy. We'll keep that and hire someone to run it and spin off prequel and start it as an independent company. So in May 20 So this is a great I love this story like cuz I mean this is exactly I think a playbook that other founders need to hear because this is how you build a company like yeah. you build your consultancy generating revenue you know up you know half a million or what would you say it was initially half a million then 4 half million half a million in year 1 4 million in year 2 Yeah team of 15 working with these companies, understanding their problems, figuring out what's the common theme here, building a product to solve that problem. So productizing, and then you control your own destiny at that point. Can we spin this up within our own company or can we spin it out? So that you've decided, you and Leah are like, okay, we're gonna, we hired a new CEO for data culture. That's gonna live its life of its own. We're gonna go build this product. So how did you get started from that point? 
Yeah. So first of all, we did everything at the same time. We were like, because when we started fundraising, we weren't really fundraising. And then we realized like this all has to happen really quickly. So in three weeks, we raised $7 million from Bessemer and Felices and hired a CEO to run data culture. And then following that, yeah, it was a wild. That's period. extraordinary. <laughs> also like part of the, the what the pandemic created is you can really raise that money quickly. I mean, it was a crazy time. It was the, it was the end of 2021. It was now we're in 22. It was like February, March. So we weren't in the, the peak where people were throwing money at just anything. But we had, as you mentioned, um, Keith, the the playbook of we are we're going to build this thing. We have a consultancy. We know this is a problem. We're not making up some research driven like this has to be solved. And initially, we didn't even want to solve it ourselves. We were looking for a tool that could solve this problem for our clients and no tool could. So eventually we were like, well, if we don't build it, someone else will. And VCs don't like to hear like, we're going to build this, whether you help us or not, they're much more interested, you know, that they're, they're like, well, we want to give you the money, you know, they are not going to walk away from something that they think they might lose. Um, so a lot of this stuff just really works in our favor that we had really solid, like founder market fit, and we're going to build this product and knew exactly what we were going to build. So then we had to build it. And as I've shared in this story, and you may be able to read between the lines here, Lee is a data engineer. I was a data viz engineer. We're not software engineers. So we were met with the challenge of like, now we need to build software really, really quickly. We know exactly what it should look like. We called up a bunch of people from WeWork. We called, I think, six friends being like, who wants to join this thing? Someone was at Spotify. Someone was at Venmo, whatever. Everybody was all over. Sure, I'll quit and build this with you. And we threw together a team that basically built exactly what we had pitched that we then launched 10 months later. Um, so it was fast, but like for us, we wanted to be even faster in some ways um, and started working with design partners, figuring out like, who's the ICP here? Who's the right profile for this product? Initially with Prequel, our whole idea was you can spin up a full data stack in a week that would have otherwise taken you a year because we've been doing that before and startups would need it. And that's true. What Prequel does is you essentially turn it on. It can connect to your Snowflake and Fivetrain instance or spin it up for you. You can push all your data into Prequel and gives you out-of-the-box metrics based on your data sources in minutes. What we realized in our consulting days was so frequently companies felt their data was unique, but they were all using the same tools. They were all on Stripe for payment processing, Zendesk, Salesforce. You know, Shopify stacks even more consistent. Shopify's everybody's got Clavio for you know Google Analytics. It's the same stack every time. So for organizations like that, it's really really easy to get set up. Um, and then the other exciting thing that happened while we were building Prequel was ChatGPT came out and OpenAI changed everything. So now things that we thought would be on our like five year AI roadmap were done in months. Like we could then build automated metric definitions and descriptions. No one wants to write revenue is this, this, and this, you know, you can just calculate it. Um, and there's a lot of exciting stuff we're now working on, on the sort of like chatbot side. If you can query any, you know, database that's been structured by prequel, you can then push that anywhere else. You can ask questions of your data within minutes. It's really cool. Um, so we built it. And then we also realized that, yeah, the startup and like SMB audience is interesting, but another even more interesting potential audience is midsize and enterprise, large organizations that have 
a sprawl of metrics across all these tools and they need to govern it and give the relevant people access and be able to pull those metrics into Google Sheets or reports in whatever way. So to go back to data visualization, Prequel today is a product that offers data access, metric management and data governance, but no data visualization. And our friends, we had a lot of, when we raised money for prequel, we called all our data friends, the CEO, the co-founder of Fivetran, one of the co-founders of Moda Analytics, uh, Looker's co-founder. And we were like, you got to invest in us because we want this like seal of approval from all the data people. Um, and one of our friends tells us very frequently from that space, like don't ever build a BI tool. We are not a BI tool. We have not built bar charts for the purpose that we really believe that if numbers match, you can be empowered by data and that's the critical line. Not if you have a million dashboards that show you a million different things. And I think a really big push for us this year is gonna be talking to people more about like, how do you get to a place where you're data driven and all of the numbers in your organization at least represent something that you can defend. So if your metrics are different from marketing and finance, you know why. There are three problems that people come to us for when they like are searching. There's like three things that we share with people at Prequel. It's like, do you have a data bottleneck problem where there's one person that you have to ping every time that you have a data question? Everybody seems to have this issue and we've been the data people and it sucks. The other crazy thing is, do different teams at your company have different answers to the same metric? People are actually measuring revenue differently in different departments. How the hell is that happening? But almost every company gets to a place where that's happening, no matter how much they're spending. And then the third is this data raises more questions than answers. You get to a meeting, you're so prepared to talk about how in 2024, we're going to reduce our CAC and increase LTV and all of these great things. And you arrive and people say, wait a second, where, where are you getting your LTV numbers from and your CAC numbers? And, your, and the entire meeting is derailed to talk about definitions and you're not actually driving any meaningful value. So Prequel solves those three issues. That's where we enter. That's where we come in. Um, and we are right now working with a lot of organizations um, in the retail space, but old school retail, not new e-com brands, but companies that have been around for a while that have a ton of interesting data and now need to implement modern infrastructure. And instead of going through the modern data stack process of paying a ton of analytics engineers to implement, you know, Snowflake or BigQuery, get rid of old Redshift or use Redshift, whatever it is, ingest all that data and then manually model it they can click a button with prequel. Um, so it's a really exciting time for us. And AI has made so much more possible. Uh, and we're about a year and a half in. So you're building a category essentially. So when you're talking to, when you're in the, like the sales process with these like retailers that have a lot of legacy data, I'm sure they're shaking their head. Like, yes, that's our problem. Yes. But are they like, how are you like you're like are they skeptical because it doesn't already exist? Uh, you know, like like what what challenges do you have to overcome throughout like a sales process? Yeah, that's a really good question and something I think about all the time. How do we get closer to a category without becoming a BI tool? Um, because that's I think the hardest thing when you're sort of sandwiched in between, when they're like, Yeah, I know I need to pay for storage, but I also need to pay for data visualization, which, yep, five years later, people know they need to pay for data visualization. But why do I need to pay for metric management? And why are you the solution to why my numbers don't match? Larger orgs 
are already disillusioned with dashboards. They know Tableau won't solve their problems. They have a million Tableau dashboards and the numbers don't match and it's not saving them any time, which is why it's been easier for us to go up market versus with startups where they're still kind of wowed by like shiny tools. They're like, no, 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 I really want a bar chart. Like a bar chart's going to solve this problem. They don't realize that a bar chart will only ever be as good as the data you push into it. Like it's the garbage in, garbage out, but really it's that. Um, so some of that is, we run these working sessions, which are sort of flavored with some of our background in data culture, enablement, thinking through how non-technical people can manage a tool like prequel. We sell to business users, right? Like our product isn't for data teams, though it does generate clean data in the warehouse that data teams can use because we're data engineers and we feel it would be irresponsible of us to be yet another like Alteryx or Domo. So when you think about tools in our space, like those would be the incumbents. Um, and Alteryx, I think, has now been bought by private equity, but they were around for a long time doing uh, data transformation for like Excel users, seat-based. It's not as much data access for all, but there's that component to it. Um, so sometimes it's taking from those budgets and explaining that to them, but it's also sharing this vision of it is possible for everyone in your organization to access numbers that match. We're making it possible. Uh, and then the other thing we've done is help reduce costs on storage and ingestion tools by pushing everything into prequel because we do manage that for a lot of these larger organizations. Um, and that's helped a lot as well. So it's not as straightforward as selling something like the newest data viz tool when everyone's seen Tableau before. Um, but the impact is so great once you get started that that's made a huge difference for us and going through, you know, this definitions process of being able to help a company that's got truly a sprawl of metrics and is getting no value from their data, get to a place where things are organized and everybody can access it and manage it. That's been really valuable. And the other thing is governance. Like, you know, you need to govern your data. People know that they need to put dollars behind that. Being able to do that without paying for data engineers is very valuable and something prequel can do. And then we are in a time where you're trying to do more with less. We're way cheaper than hiring two senior data engineers. So that's been helpful as well. I don't get a lot of pushback on those things, but it, category creation is hard. Um, and I try to avoid, you know, being... So, you know, it's figuring it out in a lot of ways. There's a few new categories. Semantic layer is one that's in the data space. Data observability is another, but yeah. Well, I noticed from LinkedIn, you hired a new sales leader, uh, which is exciting. So what, how did you figure out, like, what is your go-to-market strategy? Is it direct sales? Is it through channels? And then what was the process like hiring a sales leader? It's a really great story, my sales leader. So we um, started building community of data people many years back, but data culture was a key moment for us. And the scale that we talk about, half a million to four million helped. It was only possible because we had partnerships with Snowflake, Fivetran, Looker. So many consultancies grew at that time. And there was one person particularly who was a lead at Fivetran that we partnered with. Her name is Rachel Musinger. And we had been targeting her for a long time saying, you're incredible. You sold, you helped us sell so much. Join us one day somewhere. And the moment was right that we needed to hire a lead salesperson at prequel. Now, one of the big mistakes with startups is don't hire someone too early. Like Leah and I sold almost 100% of the deals that went through data culture. So we knew we needed to be founder led for as long as possible. And in many ways, we still are. Um, and we are selling, yeah, direct to enterprise. We're not a PLG motion right now. 
there's a lot that you can do and see in our like demo trial accounts, which is exciting, but we find it's the most valuable when, you know, we get adopted by a revenue team that wants to manage all their metrics or a marketing team that wants to roll things out or ideally like a biz ops team that's really close to the CEO's office and can, you know, push it across the whole organization. Um, and then Rachel came to us in a moment and she was like, okay, I've had my five years at Fivetran. I'm ready. Uh, and we were like, you are. So a lot of it is finding that person. And she also said, listen, I know you're early. I'll be your first BDR. I'll be your first AE, whatever it is. Like, don't look for someone who's so senior that they need to come in and then hire their own team. That was critical to us. Rachel is also our head of sales and will grow into building a team. Um, but that's been our motion right now. I do most of the outreach still on LinkedIn, reaching out to, I talk to a lot of CIOs these days, chief information officers at older school brands, um, because we can really help those companies, people who aren't even on Snowflake yet. Uh, and Rachel helps in every way there. And she also understands the modern data stack, but we'll be making a bunch of new sales hires in the year to come. And I think like figuring out, are those folks from startups? Are they from data companies? Are they from business companies? Is it all tricks pre people that we go after? That's something I'm thinking about all the time. Um, but yeah, you need to be cautious of, of figuring out, you know, is it the right moment for me to hire a salesperson? Cause they won't be able to succeed if you haven't already figured out founder-led uh, motion. Another great piece of advice. So what have been your biggest takeaways or lessons learned around building a product company? Yeah. Uh, next product company uh, would love to have uh, a software engineer on the founding team. So me and Leah will definitely be uh, engaging someone there when next time around. I don't know. It might be a long time from it, but yeah, it is helpful because then you can kind of like also for your early customers, when things break, you can just build it yourself. Like it's an interesting moment as like a pre 10 person company when you might have a couple customers, but you can't really have too many because you need the right number of engineering resources to support them. And if it's too big, then you're screwed in a different way. Um, I have a running list of all the mistakes that we've made just at prequel. Like before that, there's others, so I could read through it, but um, hiring sales too early and and being careful to to try not to do that. We were really fortunate with timing with Rachel, but it could have screwed us. Um, one of the, the earliest mistakes we made was when the money finally came from the VCs, we hadn't opened our bank account yet, so we couldn't get the money. Open your bank account in advance. Uh, that was <laughs> Where are we really going to wire crazy. this money to? Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cause we opened our data culture account ourselves. We like, didn't know how that worked. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. we banked with SVB. So enough learnings there, but wonderful people. And we still have some money there. So diversify when the money comes in, don't put it all in one place. Cause the bank can go under in 24 hours as we all saw didn't fully go under, but we all remember those moments. Um, being really close to the problem has helped us a lot. So I can't imagine doing this, just like tackling a space I wasn't familiar with, know what you want to build and then go out there and tackle it and pivot quickly. If you're chasing an ICP that is loving all the conversations with you, which we did for a while, we, we talked to a ton of RevOps people. RevOps people love our tool. They love our product. They're definitely users. They don't always have budget to buy the product. And that can become a waste of time. And you you often need a few people in your buying process. So, you know, figure out who your champion is and then who the person is who holds the keys to the castle and is actually going to sign. 
I, I think it's either. important for founder. Like I love your whole philosophy on all this because I think more founders need to know how to sell. And you can spin hours and hours and hours of cycle time with people that love to talk and love the demo or whatever, but no pain, no sale, no budget, no sale. Right. So how do you figure out, is there truly pain or are they just doing meetings for meeting sake? And there's actually budget to, to pay you. It's a really good question. And it's something I'm still asking myself every day and continuing to, to question. Um, and again, like a startup is basically time that's paid for and will run out at a certain moment. Like you're, your real currency is time. So if you waste your time on a million meetings with someone who's never going to buy, you're killing your own startup. And like, we know that all that it is. So you need to be able to walk away at a certain point. Um, I think once, like one thing we also learned with like trials and proofs of concept, if you don't know what the price is, my friend recently taught me this. He's an amazing solutions engineer. And he was like, Gabby, never start a proof of concept unless you know what the final ticket price will be and who that person signing the check will be. So being direct about questions saying, what would you pay for this? And what is your allotted budget for a tool in this space? And if they back away or show clearly, like, I actually have no uh, power to make this decision, don't try to convince yourself that this person is going to get promoted and then suddenly be a decision maker. Walk away and come back. Don't chase the wrong people. The pain points can be real, but if they don't see your solution as solving their pain points, there's no urgency. Like we spent a lot of time talking to people about this problem because we know it's a problem, but we knew it was a problem before we talked to them. You've got to talk to the people who are aggressively trying to solve the problem I work with a lot of companies now that were recently acquired by private equity because they're then getting pushed by private equity folks above for numbers. Prequels the solution. Some people, you know, come to us for these things because we can get you numbers quickly. If it's find your trigger moment, that's like happens to be one of ours, you know. Uh, some of it is um, figuring out like if someone just bought Snowflake. They're going to need five trend to get the data into Snowflake or vice versa. So those are like really clean partnerships. I reference those two a lot because it's close to us. Um, and then, yeah, it, it goes back to like, if you're, if it's not easy and people aren't buying it right away, then you're not talking to the right people. You need to sort of trust yourself there. Like it should be really fast and straightforward because you're selling something the world needs. If it's not, it's fine. You should keep trying, but don't keep trying with the same audience. Move to the next and then the next as quickly as you possibly can. And when you're doing that founder-led, it's the same as having like a CTO on the team who can build and break things and fix things for customers, you know, be the person that's solving your own problem until you get to the next phase. And there is always a phase where you can bring in help, but it's not necessarily in year one or year two. Ah, that's great, great advice. So we talked about community being such a core piece of the foundation of what you've built. And this has been, you know, something that has um, continued to show benefits, right, throughout your career. So what advice would you have for people on starting a community? Like it sounds like a uh, very heavy lifting, ambitious goal, yet lots of benefits. So I should do it. But where do I get started? Yeah. Okay. Great. I love that. So a really easy way to get started. And one of the things we've been doing recently is gathering a smaller group together. I held a women in data and AI breakfast a couple of weeks ago um, with friends at workbench. And we started a WhatsApp group of the 12 people that came to that breakfast that then is, it's, I think it's called like no dumb questions. And we're asking everyone in the group to invite 10 more people. 
community starts with one and then it grows. You can host a breakfast. You can partner with others who will bring more people in. There's a huge virtual movement. We do data conferences online all the time. And then stuff in real life. I'm in New York City. We met at a live event, Keith, in New York City. So some, some of that is possible. The, the I think the point is just like, Picking a date, starting with a list, a group, and making something happen. Community can happen anywhere, anyhow, and the people don't all need to be the same type. Like, it can't be so vague as just, you know, tech in New York. People do do that, but I think, like, narrowing it a little bit, so data and AI, or, you know, early stage SaaS startups meeting, you know, on this day helps. Um, and then that will kind of organically grow, but also you know, having ambassadors within every community I've ever grown, we've had ambassadors. So of the 12 that joined us initially at breakfast last week, then they invite 12 and they create more ambassadors and more ambassadors. You can't do it alone. You need to sort of assign tasks to people the way you do at a company. Um, but it is possible. And, and also like tagging on to things like data culture has a Slack group with thousands of people in it. Prequel doesn't yet have a Slack group. We're a group within data culture today or we start groups within other groups like the the era of just starting new apps for everything social i think is like come and gone and it's better to figure out are you a platform or something that lives on top of a platform communities can exist in all places and the uh breakfast that you hosted in partnership with workbench like i i you know vcs community is a big core piece of their platform strategy so they want to be involved so don't be afraid to reach out to the vcs and who's the community you know partner we or are. head of community and ask them hey i'm going to be doing it. they'll be like absolutely i'll pay for the bagels right like, like so that's, they paid for the bagels i need to invoice them today actually for the bagels yes that's exactly <laughs> no it's so i do that all the time i i connect with vcs all the time and host things but your point also speaks to sales, which is don't be afraid to reach out to people on LinkedIn. I am constantly adding new people. Hi, I'm running this company. I think we could help you. I want to partner with you. I want your feedback. And there's a high response rate. All right. Top three apps you can't live without. WhatsApp, LinkedIn, and embarrassed, but honest to say it's Instagram. I'm not using a lot of Twitter these days. Yeah, no, I... <laughs> it's just a different world now. Uh, okay, a good like podcast book recommendation for entrepreneurs. For sure, this one, one hundred percent. A good podcast. I like um, Scott. I always quote this Scott Belsky's book. The messy middle is fun. I think anything that talks about like the messiness, the struggle, and you know, sharing that this is not easy. And you only get through it because the wins are so high and the lows are so low, and they each make the other better. All right, what do you like to do for fun outside of work? I do still enjoy oil painting. It's hard to do in New York City because there's not a ton of studios. Mm -hmm. um, and Lee and I really, really appreciate omakase sushi. And we're always looking for like the top best place. So maybe that's something we can do together at some point. Um, and I like to run when there's time. It's good to have a, a kind of break in the day. Very cool. All right, Gabby, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story. Obviously, all the great uh, advice for you know people interested in a career in data visualization, all the lessons learned around building companies, and obviously all the best to you and the team on Prequel. Thank you so much, Keith. I can hands down say this is one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. So thank you.